Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, a little bit behind because I've had a very busy schedule this past weekend. I was a scholar resident in Teaneck and now came back to finish up my lecture series this past Monday and last night and Wednesday. Finally concluded about the Russian pogroms of 1881. Eventually it'll be on the podcast, but it'll probably take a while. Anyway, uh, so to try to get back to my schedule, I looked and I see this week is some big famous names. And the one that caught my attention, zeroed in with her, Famous Reb Chaim You know, uh, let me say this. I've evolved organically into talking about two types of famous gedolim, I guess, on these midweek podcasts. One is uh, people are famous but actually very obscure. So then I have to tell you, uh, you know, who they were. And then there are other people that are very famous that even you've heard of, and you can easily research, and then I don't have to tell you about their biography so much, but rather share with you an angle that I have perhaps on that person. So, Rukhamar Zygorzhensky probably fall in the second category, because who hasn't heard of him? Uh, the famous Godel who died in 1940, I think he was born in 1860, so he lived 80 years, uh, which is not that long, you know, but uh, nevertheless... And uh, who hasn't heard about him if you have anything to do with yeshivas or things of that nature anyway? But I want to, therefore, not concentrate so much on his biography, interesting as that is. He had a rather tragic life, actually, you know, tragic life. But um, rather on a certain historical angle. And I'll tell you what I mean. For those who don't know what I'm talking about, those living on the moon, Chaimah Zygzins was this big rabbi that lived in the late 1800s and early 1900s up to 1940. And he was like considered like the God of Ador by the non-Hasidic world. Okay? And uh, after the First World War, he was like the man. Uh, and even prior to that, he had a great deal of influence. Uh, but he didn't have a job description, and that's what is fascinating to me. So let me speak in straightforward terms. It's interesting that the modern era which has lasted 200, 250 years, which has seen the breakdown of the old traditions in many ways, the autonomous course of communities, the cultural insularity, all that sort of thing, in what we call modern era, modern times, was sort of countered in the firm world by uh, the emergence of, shall we say, authority figures. Uh, the whole Hasidus is based on that. Right? Being a Hasid means you got a Rebbe. Rebbe means you do, Simon says, whatever he tells you to do, you do. And that's a modern thing. Didn't never existed before the modern period. The Baal Shemta was in the 1700s. Everybody knows that's just a historic fact. So the emergence of a, of an office or concept of a Rebbe is new in Jewish history, and it's clearly counter-modern. Meaning the modern movement is 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 all of modern Western civilization is chipping away at authority. So here the they're evolved in Europe, a whole huge movement, fastest growing Judaism today. 
in which you do the opposite. You kind of transfer all your autonomy to that person's authority. But now I'm going to talk about the non-Hasidim. And uh, they never developed office of a Rebbe, as you know. On the other hand, they, they did emerge in a much more unstructured way the notion of like a, 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 a top figure, a supreme figure within that culture, sort of. It's not like a Rebbe, but sort of. And I'm thinking out loud, because that's all I ever do here, sitting in my room and rambling, uh, that you can draw like a line, but it no longer exists today. I think of Chaim Meiser, maybe after Moshe Feinstein, it was like the last, at least as far as I can tell. Uh, and so you go like this, the Velnagon, Chaim Belazhener, Rebitsa Belazhener, Rebitsa Belazhener Inspector, Chaim Meiser, in America, Moshe Feinstein, and that's it. So what did I do? Six or seven names? Now, what does all that have in common? These are people who, totally regardless of their office, their formal position, or lack thereof, achieved a kind of authority status in the non-Hasidic world, which is not structured in such a way to have a Rebbe, and nevertheless had you know, some kind of a unique authority. I left out the Chazanish, by the way. Uh, attained a, a, a kind of charismatic authority, uh, which is kind of interesting. And you don't necessarily see this in old Jewish history. Let me tell you what I mean. If you go back in the, Christ, the 18th century, you know, a lot of big rabbis running about that time. You have Yonah Sanabshus, and Note of Yehuda, and Shagasari, like I mentioned earlier. But none of them you would say, oh, everybody listens to what this one said. Each one had a following or not a following, and the, and the Hamunam didn't know much of the difference between one and the other. How would they? And it's only we, in retrospect, we look back at their Sfarim and their writings, and their students, they say, oh, this is a famous person. Same thing in the 1600s, the 1500s. The Jewish history of rabbinic world scholarship, Torah scholarship, is, you know, when you have famous people who became famous mostly for what they wrote, or, or perhaps who they taught, or something like that. Um, but sometimes you have, especially, as they say, ever since the Vilna Gon, people with a kind of a unique charisma that uh, transcends their local environment, so the Vilna Gon didn't become a big deal in Vilna, only became a big deal throughout Lithuanian Jewry, which is a large category of Eastern European non-Hasidic uh, Jewry. As a matter of fact, uh, on the contrary, the Vilna Gon, when he lived, and he died in 1797, uh, had no position whatsoever. He wasn't the rabbi of the city. He didn't have a yeshiva. Uh, he had a little shtibo, they call it kloys, and, you know, a couple of uh, close uh, disciples, and Dosidos. And somehow or other, uh, the reputation permeated outwards, and during his lifetime, especially the second half of his lifetime, he had a tremendous uh, hashpah and authority on people, you know, even today, oh my goodness. And so it therefore was not dependent on what he wrote, and not dependent on any institution that he headed, and not depend on him going in politics and making speeches and all that kind of thing, because he did none of those. But rather, it's, it's like a, a, the, literally the Greek word charisma. There's something in some way got out there, and he had it. It. When the Vilna Gon died, so it took a while, and if you know your history well, Rechaim Velazhin kind of obtained this uh, authority. I'm talking about Rechaim Velashen, who was the rabbi of the town of Velashen, big deal, it's a small town, who set up uh, the famous yeshiva, that was a big deal, and that became the basic yeshiva of the modern times. But that was not really the uh, source of his authority. On the contrary, uh, 
because he had the authority, therefore the yeshiva was able to flourish. So here you have somebody who had no official position outside being a rabbi of a small town and eventually head of an important school. But nevertheless, if you know anything, not many people know this, by the way, of the first two decades of the 19th century, time of Napoleonic Wars, all the rest of it, he was the guy. And all the other rabbonim and rich balabatim and influential people in Lithuania and white Russia and such places used to go and consult with him, meaning his opinion was the one that he had a charismatic authority. Not exactly the same way that Vilna Gaon did, of course, uh, but nevertheless, it was real. Okay, So in places like Minsk and Vilna and you know, all the places in Belarus and the Lithuanian Latvia, as we would call today. When he died, this mantle was inherited by his son, I spoke about him in a podcast a month or two ago, who really seems to have been a shy and retiring type of fellow. In spite of what I just said, he definitely exercised that charismatic authority during his time, but since he lived under repressive czarist regimes, he had to kind of hide it. But if you take the trouble to study the accounts and all of that time, you see that he was the one that they all looked to and they all followed and, uh, you know, had a big opinion about. Uh, am I speaking specifically in the era of halacha? Yes, but I'm, all, I'm really speaking much wider than that. You know, to be the gadol ador in, in, in the sense that, you know, he has sort of like the, the most important opinion, the final opinion, even though there were other big rabbis at that time as well. Plenty. When Ritzel Voloshan had died, which was like in the 1850s, so uh, this role came to be filled within a decade or so, by Rabbi Zuglohan Inspector, who was, of course, the rabbi of a city, the rabbi of Kovna, and uh, didn't have a yeshiva, uh, but his, the authority that permeated throughout Lithuania, Latvia, Belarus, and those places, and eventually outside of there, was kind of independent of his position as the rabbi of a particular town in Lithuania, but it was due to his charismatic uh, you know, uh, uh, draw. I spoke about this already. People today are still trying to figure out, like, you know, what did he do that he had such a hold on everybody? But he certainly did. And uh, is this interesting? As he was the final address. When he died, which was in 1896, so it took a while, and no particular person that I know of kind of assumed that role. But eventually, Rechaim Eisner Grzynski did. Uh, not right away, but I would say after the First World War, so in the last 20 years of his life, in the 1920s and 30s, he was the guy. And all throughout the non-Hasidic world, if Rav said something, that's it. And his opinion really counted. And once again, you have the interesting phenomenon of somebody who had no official role. He wasn't a rub of a town, uh, contrary to what people think. He didn't have a yeshiva, no specific yeshiva. He did for a while have, in the younger years, what they call a kibbutz. The kibbutz is a term that the Zionists appropriated for the agricultural settlements in Israel. I know that. I'm not stupid. But a kibbutz originally was a yeshiva term for a group of um, superior guys to, to, to hang around and be like a, what we call today a chabura. And so he had a, a kibbutz in, in, in Vilna in which he would give shiurim and hock and learning, really, with uh, very good guys. You know, it was like one of them off the top of my head, Relazer Silver, of that kibbutz, for example, but many others, and uh, Shmuel Hillman, whatever. And, uh, you know, so he had his group, but he wasn't really a Rosh Hashiva in the classic sense, 
you know, like a Bark Bear or a Simmons Cup or people like that. So uh, he didn't have any specific uh, position. But nevertheless, again, by the First World War, certainly the aftermath of the First World War, he had attained, one way or another, this uh, powerful uh, charisma. And, uh, you know, and his word really, uh, can, he had almost like the final word. And if he gave you a haskama, that's it. And if he dissed the book, then it's hard to get out of there. And it's just very interesting to me because, once again, how did this charisma develop? And so he was, if I can use the term, the Rebbe of the uh, non-Hasidic world, which is just a very interesting uh, position. Uh, again, after the First World War, I'm not only talking about Lithuania, all the, all the rabbis in Germany were machnia to him, uh, and just about all the rabbis in America, and other places as well. Even though he's just some rabbi in a town, Vilna, which is in the Republic of Poland, 1920s, 30s, like, why should it matter? Uh, but it did matter. It, it, it's you know, it, it, it did matter. There was a whole delegations of German rabbis used to come like every summer to talk to him and get his opinions on things. Uh, I'll give you one example of many, many, and that is the Hildesheimer Seminary. This week, I think, is also the Art Center of Israel Hildesheimer, but I can only do one at a time. And uh, but Hildesheimer set up for to, to dumb it down for you. The first YU. It's, it wasn't YU, but it's something like that. In which he had, in Germany, from 1873 on, a uh, seminary in which in the morning the boys learned Gemara and all that sort of thing, plus some extra subjects like Jewish history and, you know, uh, whatever, things along those lines. And in the afternoon you go to college and eventually get your PhD. And it was pretty successful in the sense that they turned out bunch of Rabbanim who were from and were able to uh, communicate with their communities in Western Europe, in Germany, the West, and all that, uh, because they had PhDs there for their, their modern men, and that helped them keep the Balabatib uh, from, no question about it. But uh, it was never sort of, the model was never accepted 100% in Eastern Europe, because they didn't like the whole aspect, all the rest, they just went old-fashioned yeshiva, gamar, gamar, gamar. And Rabbi Hildesheimer died in 1900, 1899. And he had successors, but by the time you get to the Hitler era, 1933, so it became very quickly apparent that there's no future for Judaism and Jewish institutions in Europe. So what's going to happen in, in Germany, I mean? I'm talking about the 1930s. And so what's going to happen to the Hildesheimer Seminary? Uh, they're not going to go for very long under the Hitler regime. And so, uh, on the other hand, it's a unique institution. It is a very firm place, which is turning out people who have termed their hair. It's literally Torah a PhD. So, there were various proposals about transferring it, moving to other places. And this is well known, what I'm saying. Uh, and in 1934, which is a year afterwards, the city of Tel Aviv offered him a sweetheart deal, baby. They wanted the, uh, to have what you call a modern Orthodox I'm using the word modern orthodox, very from modern orthodox institution in Israel. Uh, they didn't, already in the 1930s, they didn't like the fact that everything is black hatter and black coat. And why can't you have a modern cultured orthodoxy? And the city of Tel Aviv offered them a big piece of land and maybe three buildings and stuff like that to transfer the place to Palestine, which is really great. And instead of Tel Aviv University, you have the Hillsheimer Seminary, something like that. 
as you know, eventually they came up 20 years later with Barilan, although that's a different sort of thing. But nevertheless, the notion that you want from people to have a, uh, what shall I say, a kosher option <laughs> in terms of their higher education, they thought it was a good idea. And the board of directors of the Hildesheimer Seminary, which was the son of Rabbi Hildesheimer and others, they wanted to take the deal, but Rabbi Chaimazer nixed it. He said, Israel should be only be pure. Israel should only have what we call black hat yeshivas and nothing other, totally Haredi. And uh, because he said it, they, they listened. Notice they committed suicide. Uh, because if they didn't take the Tel Aviv deal, then the seminary was doomed. But by 1934, the power of Chaimazer was such that if he said it, it's called Vedas Torah, and you have to give them credit. They were from guys, and they said, okay, then we will self-destruct. And that's what happened. So I'm trying to say, that's what you call authority. Now, uh, they were Germans. They didn't have to listen to him, but they did. So that's what I mean when I say of transnational authority. When Rabbi Meiser died, the best I can see is, although not exactly in the same way, but this was picked up by the Chazanish. So after the death of Rabbi Meiser in 1940, by the time you get to the late, middle 40s, late 40s, particularly in Eretz Yisrael, it's more in Israeli phenomenon than elsewhere, uh, the Chazanish emerged as the charismatic authority, the way Meiser did. And by the way, the Chazanish was sort of like a disciple and a very close inner friend, younger, of course, with, with the Chazanish. I'm sorry, with Rabbi Meiser, you know what I'm saying? And uh, as we all know, the Chazanish had a gigantic influence on the formation of the uh, from community, Haredi community in Eretz Yisrael. So, once again, what was his job? The Chazanish wasn't a rabbi of a town. He'd never show. He never yeshiva. He sort of transcended all of that. The same way of Chaim Meiser did. He didn't have a yeshiva. He was out of all the yeshivas in a certain way. So, to me, it's just a very interesting phenomenon that you have this idea of Godel. In the USA, you and I know, well, I don't know how young you are, but if you're my age or more or less, this is a picture of Moshe Feinstein. And so he had this kind of authority that I just described. If he said it's okay, it's okay. If he said it's not okay, then it's really a problem. And it wasn't a function of the fact that Moshe Feinstein was the Rosh Hashim and MTJ, because there weren't too many guys over there. But it transcended it, okay? Now, in his case, due to the published, uh, you know, scholarship. But even without that, some people have it. And again, this applies to the non-Hasidic world. Ever since the 80s, when Ramosha Feinstein passed away, to the best of my ability, and all I ever tell you is what I think, I don't see any guttle like that. There's nobody who the public, just of its own, wants to follow and give that kind of authority. There are a lot of rabbis out there who would like to have that authority, and the Haredi newspapers and magazines are always trying to foist people out there and say, this is the guttle, this is this person and that person, but that's not what I'm talking about. You know, the Vilna Gon did not appear on the cover of Mishpacha magazine. <laughs> you know, Chaim Meiser wasn't put out there by, uh, you know, the Yated Neman or something like that. These people are really there or they're not. In Israel, you know, we had, it, it, it's a little bit different, uh, but it's more complicated because since Israel has the yeshiva world of its own, it's kind of formalized this process of declaring somebody a Goro. That ain't the same thing. So Rabbi Yashav, I think, just had it automatically. But there are other people out there that push that they'll say, this person is now the Agadolador. And then you'll say, I never heard of him until a little while ago. Oh, you never heard of him? But he's the Agadolador. It, it doesn't work in the same way, at least not to my mind. Uh, the natural charisma 
is the impressive part. The non-natural is not so. The, the, the manufactured or the, or the insi- insisted upon is, uh, is a different story, as far as I can see it. Now, Chaim Meiser uh, had, as I say, a very complicated life, and I don't have time to go through all of this, but I would simply say that uh, uh, he lived all his life in Vilna. He was from the elite group. But in his time, when he was coming up, he's born in 1860, so when he was, by the, or by the 1880s and all that, 1890s, when he was a young man, he was a genius, no question about it, and super genius in learning. And he was in a situation where Vilna uh, did not have an official rabbi. Well, they did. What do I mean when I say this is the czarist Russia? I must have mentioned it before. The czars of Russia were such jerks that they administratively tried to force the Jews to become Russians. And one of the projects, going back to the emperor Nicholas I, was to insist that the only people who can serve as Rabbonim are people who can speak Russian and have a, have a Russian education, which, of course, none of the rabbis had. I mean, in, 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 in Russia, when I say Russia, I'm talking about Lithuania, Latvia, and Belarus and Ukraine. Uh, the Rabbanim over there didn't even speak anything but Yiddish. Chaim Moser, for example, all of his life, basically only spoke Yiddish. Now, the guy was a genius. He could have learned ten languages if he wished to, right? You know, if he could figure all the other stuff out, he could pick up the languages. See, he didn't want to. You know what I'm saying? He didn't want to as, as a demonstrative act. If he would say, I picked up Russian on the side, and there were some good that did, but he didn't. If he picked up Russian on the side, that was sent out a message to all the yeshiva guys that Limurichol is okay, you should pick up the language in the Medina and then read all the secular books, all the rest of it. He did not want that. And so, if you can't speak Russian, you can't become a rub of a town. I, all the Rabbanim were big people and they didn't speak Russian. And so what you ended up was that the Gedolim went back down and the Russian government went back down. And so you had a dual-track system in which the government had what they call Rav Mitam, the government, the Jewish community, if they wanted somebody to be a rabbi in in Russia, the Russian Empire, the keeping of the official records of who's married, who's divorced, who's born, who's dead, were left in the hands of the clergy. So your tax status, you know what I mean, your legal status is depending on what the clergy person puts in the official books, what's called the metric books. And if you uh, cheat on those books, you can get in big trouble. And so uh, they needed a rabbi. And so, since the Russian government insisted that someone with a Russian education, what the Frum ended up doing was saying, okay, we will choose somebody who has a Russian education, but the Iker thing is, he should make no pretensions whatsoever to be a Rav. So you have a Rav, but he's not a Rav. So, in all these towns, Vilna is a very good example. You would get somebody who was totally not Frum, and they make him the rabbi. Or a pharmacist, uh, and they make him a rabbi. Or a dentist. Or, uh, you know, somebody like that. And what can a guy who's a dentist who can barely read Hebrew uh, doing to be the rabbi? That's the point. Then all the Jews in the town know this guy's a phony. They were only putting him up to satisfy the stupid government regulations. And the real rub is this other guy who lives a few blocks away who's an old school rub. It's Rabbi Zalon Inspector, it's Rabbi Meiser, it's Rabbi Sal Khan, you know, the David Kaliner. No, it's the real rub by him. And so you had what they call. Kazanya Ravin, the, the government rabbi, who was just a public official, uh, who was deliberately a non-impressive figure. And then you have the other guy who's the rabbi of the town, really, but he was 
not paid on the books by the Kahila as the Rav because the dentist is the Rav. Rather, he was given some other job, you know, like we say today, works for the Vatikashvist or for the Mikvah or something like that, and that's how they paint him off the books. So, um, I'm not off the books, but, you know, on the books, but off the real record. Now, why am I mentioning this? Here you have the city of Vilna, a very, very large and important city by the standards of Lithuania, which had a Jewish population explosion, because I remember the time of Vilna Gom was like 2,500, and by the First World War, it was like 60, 70,000, or maybe more. That's huge. So, uh, you know, it expanded tremendously in the 19th century. Now, in Vilna, you also you had two problems. On the one hand, you have a Rav Mitam. The government insisted on putting some jerk in there. Should be officially the rabbi. Number two, you had a self-denying ordinance on the part of the Rabbanim. Because Vilna was a place where in the 1700s, the time Vilna gone, there was a tremendous, ugly fight over who should be the rabbi there. It's called the Shmuel Benavigdor story. And uh, they appointed a rabbi, and the fa- one faction liked him, the other faction didn't like him, and they took him to the Polish courts. And the Vilna Gone ended up going to jail as well. It was a really messy kind of business. So much so that uh, it's very famous that after this controversial rabbi died in the late 1700s, they sort of came to a, what shall I say, a quiet uh, uh, consensus that they're not going to elect anybody to be the uh, base and the official rabbi of Vilna. They can just get along with the group of Dayanim. And that's what they did. They would have a basin, meaning a group of Dayanim, three, four, five guys. One guy specializes in Gitin, one guy takes care of the Kashras, one guy takes care of, I don't know, you know Mikvah, things like that, you know, th- that way, uh, through a specialty. It, it works. And all throughout the 19th century, 1810s, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, that's how they kind of operated. Uh, so there were famous Rabbanim in Vilna, but there was no rabbi of Vilna. And this became like a, an accepted tradition. Um, what's it called? The Rotsal, the Binyan Shlomo was there. You know, they were famous, uh, great, great scholars, very great scholars in Vilna, but there was nobody who's, like I say, the Rav of Vilna. So Rizal Hanna was the Rav of Kovna. There was no Rav in Vilna. There was a rabbi, though. There was, a, like I say, a dentist or a florist or something like that, but that was the official guide. Now, in the case of Chaim Meiser, there was no question by the time he came up and it was already in his 20s and 30s, he was a genius and he had a, a, a charisma and he was seen as a very smart individual and all the rest of it. And it was already offered to him at this very young age. You could be the, the, the Rav of the Frum. And because of his uh, you know respect for tradition, modest nature and all that, he said, no, I'll just be one of the him." And uh, that's how it functioned. On the other hand, they were really ticked off by the late 19th century with all these dentists and florists and, you know, shoemakers being rabbis, officially. It was a big pressure within the rabbinic world to figure some way out in which the real rabbanim could get recognized by the government as the official rabbanim. They never quite worked that out. There were conferences about this among the rabbis, among the government, in the first decade of the 20th century. It's a very complicated story. Not, now it's not time to go into it. But uh, never happened. On the other hand, when the... Uh, dentist or the, like I say, the, the, the shoe salesman died in the early 1900s. So there was a from guy, uh, I think his name was Ritzik Rubinstein, who was in Slovakia, but somehow or other he also got a, a law degree. I forget how he did that. Uh, you know, uh, how he managed to combine that Slovakia with a degree from Moscow University. 
beats me. But uh, Chaim Eisen, the other said, so let's put it this way, he was a from guy, but he had, somehow or other he cheated and had a college education. Uh, but he had smicha, you know, I mean, it was a real rabbi. And he got elected, they put him in, and uh, therefore Vilna now had an official rabbi, who was this uh, Yitzhak Rubenstein, who was a Talmud Chacham. Of course, he's not in the same universe of Chaim Eiser. You could be a Talmud Chacham, but that doesn't mean you're in the same, not only league, but the same universe and learning of Chaim Eiser. And he was a nice guy, and he made speeches and all that sort of thing, and they felt better because at least the Rav Mitam is a Shomer Shabbos. At least the Rav Mitam, like I say, is not a dentist, not a janitor, you know. And he was respecting of Chaim Eiser, of course, and everything was going good according to that. And meanwhile, uh, Chaim Eiser just was like the, uh, you know, like one of the Dayonim. But really, you could tell that, you know, he's the one that has the heavy weight. The elders kind of respect him and listen to him. And it was in this capacity that people thought of Chaim Eiser as the Rabbi of Vilna, because kind of de facto, in a certain way, behind the scenes and all that, he kind of was. He wasn't, he wasn't. He wasn't, he wasn't. But, uh, and I would say that during these years, when he was in his 30s and 40s, a young man, in the 1890s, in the 1910s, he became very active in, in Jewish politics behind the scenes. So he clearly was one of these people that liked to work behind the scenes. This is the tradition of Rizal uh, Salanter and other people, that they try to frustrate government gazeras and try to deal with political issues affecting Jews in Russia and Lithuania, but not out public. They didn't feel comfortable doing it. They liked to work with lobbyists behind the scenes. And Chamezer was definitely from that group. As a matter of fact, it was in the first decade of the 20th century that he helped make the Agudis roll. Well, it's a long story, like I say. Only a few minutes left, so I'll just leave it at that. Uh, the the Agudis roll had its convention in 1912, and he was very uh, behind the scenes involved in all that. Then came the First World War. But remember, had he wanted to learn Russian, he could have. And if he would have learned Russian uh, and passed a test or two, which for a genius like him was an art, he couldn't have gotten the job as official rabbi of the city. You know, he could have gotten the job of the dentist. But that's not what he wanted to do. They were already not comfortable with that. So uh, then came the First World War. The Russian government was beyond anal in the First World War. And they used to have hostage-taking and things like this. Imagine that on their own people. That's the Russian mentality. And so uh, the czarist government, and they shot and killed and raped their own people. You know, lots of Jews had a terrible time in Russia from the Russians in the First World War. I just did a series on this about a month ago, I guess, five weeks ago in Baltimore, and in Shemrimuna, and uh, again, eventually it'll be online somewhere. I got it on the YouTube already. Anyway, uh, the Russian government, did, so Chaim Eiser was on a hit list. Uh, people to be arrested, and, you know, in Russia, they arrest you, they shoot you, and then you have a trial. And uh, so he kind of fled the city. And he spent the years of World War One outside of Vilna. Uh, of course. Uh, but what, what they did was, the rabbis like him ran away to Minsk. To, they moved from, I know you don't know the map, so there's no use of me telling you this, but I'll just tell you, uh, the Germans are in the west of Russia, and therefore the farther east you go, the farther away from the uh, uh, battle lines, Lithuania was on the front line, and so a lot of these yeshivas and rabbis ran away east to first to Belarus, and then when the war caught up with them there, they ran farther east to the Ukraine. That's what Chaim Reiser did. And he spent those war years 
running around in these war zones of Russia or behind the front, being active, helping, you know, refugees and trying to organize Jewish life. You know, there was the Russian Revolution in 1917. For a while, they thought it would be a democracy in Russia, and therefore the Agoda wanted to set up a political party. That's a long story, like I say, too, too far to go into. By the time the war is over, and he returned to Vilna, so this Rabbi Rubinstein, who had been the official chief rabbi, really stepped up to the plate, and he saved the Jews of Vilna several times, from the Russian army and later from the German army that took over and occupied him. Mean, he, he did a lot of chesed for a lot of people and saved a lot of individuals in tough situations. And his wife was amazing, and she set up soup kitchens, and she was a famous Jewish woman of yesteryear. Many people don't know about her. That would be Esther Rubenstein. And um, that's a whole, you could do a whole podcast just on her. And uh, they were very, very popular. And Rav Chaim Eisner came back like 1920, or something like that, from after the First World War. And the international politics is such that the city of Vilna and its district was seized by Poland from Lithuania, because these are two new countries that started after the First World War, and they had a continuous war for 20 years. And therefore, Vilna was part of the Republic of Poland. And later in the 20s, the Polish government passed a law in which they said there was going to be, for the first time ever in Jewish history, actual democratic elections for a position of rabbi. What do I mean? Throughout Jewish history, you had rabbonim of Kehillahs who were elected, but elected by a tiny few. You know, by a board of directors, by the rich, by those who pay a lot of taxes, a whole kind of system. We Jews have had democratic system for thousands of years, but it's an extremely radically restricted franchise. Very few people actually did the voting. Now it's the 20th century, and the new Poland wanted to democratize that for a whole bunch of reasons. And so you have a very interesting situation, which I don't think you usually have in Jewish history. Many people don't know about this. In Poland in the 1920s and 30s, you mamish had democratic elections for a position, which is a government official position of chief rabbi of a town or something like that. Look, take America, for example. No rabbi is democratically elected over here, except in the, in the sense of a synagogue. Rabbis in America are elected in synagogues democratically, you know, by the members of the shul. But you don't have such a thing as somebody's a rub of a town or whatever, a larger area, and is actually democratically elected. Take, for example, the state of Israel today. Is there a Rav Rashi in Tel Aviv? Yeah. Is there a Rav Rashi in Yerushalayim? And Haifa and all the other places there are. Who votes for him? Not the people of the city. They have some con- convoluted system in which they, once again, they have, you know, the machers put these people in. You understand? It's not, it would be a very interesting um, phenomenon in America, and I think it would be better. Let's say, for example, you have a basin in Baltimore, a basin in Lakewood, a basin in New York. Suppose the Dionym and the basin were actually elected in a uh, formal democratic election. So that all the people of this town, or at least all the from people, somehow or other figured a way to uh, to uh, you know uh, vote these people vote for these people, you'd have a very very interesting situation. I think you'd have a, a sounder basin system, in my opinion. So in the 1920s, you had this very unusual business, in which thanks to the Polish law, now the Jews of Vilna themselves are going to elect who should be the chief rabbi, and uh, by that time it's going to be a position with power. And so Chaim Meiser was in his late 60s thought. Now he's going to do it. But he, uh, by that time, Rechaim Meiser had already started the Agudah. The Agudah was not the Mizrahi. The Agudah and Mizrahi were bitter enemies in the 1920s and 30s in Poland. It's a sad story. 
And there were many people in the Mizrahi movement, particularly, who didn't like this and wanted the two sides. Who wanted the two sides to uh, kind of merge together. And Rechaim Meiser and others did conduct um, continuous negotiations throughout the 1920s and 30s. If there's some way the Agudah Mizrahi can jump into one organization, but but it never happened. You understand? I mean, just to give off the top of my head, one of Chaim Meiser's students from that kibbutz had been Rabbi Amil, Rabbi Amil, who uh, became a big uh, person in the Mizrahi movement. He was a rabbi in Antwerp and later in Tel Aviv. Maybe you've seen his very famous Lamedisha Sefer, Hamidus Lecheker Halacha. And uh, he was a close Talmud of Chaim Meiser, but in terms of politics, he was in the, in the Mizrahi. And he was always trying to make negotiations, isn't there some way that the two firms should come together? It would be a good thing. I think everybody would agree, if you could come up with a basis of agreement, but of course they couldn't. That's what happened. It never happened. So the result is that questions of Zionism or anti-Zionism were big salahamachlokas, uh, and make a long story short, the Mizrahi and the Zionists in general who represent a lot of people, put up Rabbi Rubenstein to be the candidate for chief rabbi of the city. They should be democratically elected. Remember, it's the first time in democratic elections. The Aguda types put up Rabchaim Meiser. Uh, they were outraged that somebody even has the chutzpah to run against Rabchaim Meiser. I get that. But the fact is he lost. Meaning, they had a campaign. Uh, believe it or not, who was the, <laughs> who was the uh, campaign manager in this democratic election? The Chavetz Chaim, who was like 90. Uh, he came to Vilna. He was outraged also. And people would dare to Running against Rabbi Meiser. So here you have a very fascinating story of a clash between the new and the old. The old is a culture of deference. How dare you even hint to contradict anything a Godel says? And you have the new, which is he's elected by the public. The public has the right in secret elections to express their opinion. And Rabbi Meiser lost. And I can tell you that was considered such a terrible thing by the Agoda types and by the Yeshiva world and uh, such a scandal that uh, there was very, very bitter feelings uh, as was by the losers. And, I mean, it was, they were even thinking uh, of setting a separate Cahill up, which is something you didn't do in Eastern Europe. And uh, what's really interesting to me is that even the winners, the Zionists and Mizrahi said, you know, the, the feelings are too bitter. And so what they, you know, what shall I say, unofficially said was, listen, we're not challenging Rechaim Meiser, the biggest Tom Chacham around, and the God of and all the rest of it. And so let's work this out. The chief rabbi won't really interfere with Rechaim Meiser, Rabbi Rubenstein, you know? He'll just be the official rabbi, not exactly a Rav Tom, but, you know, something like that. And no one will will uh, interfere in what the basin does and what Rechaim Meiser does. They kind of worked out a modus vivendi. So unofficially, uh, he was the chief rabbi, and since by that time, you're talking about the late 20s, he was like, I won't say the god of the Yeshiva world, because that's not a nice word, but, you know, he was the super figure of the Yeshiva world. So I guess he was satisfied. Uh, I've gone too long already. I just wanted, as I say, to bring out a few aspects. There are a thousand other things you can say about Rechaim Meizu but I just want to put a little bit of it in uh, historical uh, context. Uh, when he died... Uh, the Jews of Eastern Europe died because he died in 1940, and then they were all killed out by Hitler, all of them, as we all know, unfortunately. Uh, one year after the death of Chaim Meiser, Hitler came in, and the Einsatzgruppen shot one and a half million Jews in Eastern Europe. 
So think about what I just said. This is before the, the, the concentration camps were set up. This is before the gas chambers were invented. There's a shot. All the Jews in Lithuania and Latvia and Belarus and all these places, very few survivors, as, as you know very well. Uh, my father was one of the very few survivors, but very few survivors. And so the whole world of Chaimah just simply ceased to exist. You know, so you can't say who's the God of Lador in Eastern Europe after him. Uh, after that, like I said, you had the Chazanei, Shadow Moshe Feinstein, maybe you have one or two other figures that I'm not thinking about. Uh, I guess in the 50s, Reviron Cutler was sort of like that, sort of. Uh, but n- nobody quite with that grand uh, grasp, you know, with that grand charisma. And so one of the big problems we have today, to my mind, is we don't have any gadol like that. We don't have any big gadolim. Uh, you have a lot of little ones. And, uh, you, know, you know, you have Rosh Hashibas, all the rest of it. There's no charismatic figure that everybody says, this is the person who counts. Uh, and I think we are all uh, hurt by that, lacking by that. And the younger generation doesn't have a person that they can, you know, fix their charismatic uh, uh, connections with. It's a big subject that I just mentioned. But I've already gone for much longer than I expected. That's probably what happens to me lately. And so with that, I'll say Tisha Bo's around the corner, and you should have an easy fist, a thoughtful fist. And if I have any time tomorrow, we'll either talk about the partial or about uh, Tisha Bo or something like that. But for now, goodbye.